Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Equals. This is your co-host, Nadia. And this is your co-host, Max. This is a really exciting episode because we're going to we're focusing on climate, climate and inequality, and we're going to hear, first of all, from Nafkota, who's been on, been on the podcast before. She's our amazing climate lead at Oxfam, and she's in Egypt at, at the, the Climate Cop as we speak. Um, we're going to hear a bit about the report, and we're going to hear from a few other people on this issue of climate and inequality. But let, let, let's go to you, Naf. So you, how's it going over there in Egypt? Uh, right now, it's a bit disappointing because it feels like equity and justice is missing from all the negotiations, from the conference, from all the discussions. So when it comes to you know mitigation, reducing emissions, or when we're talking about loss and damage issues, you know an issue that is critical, so important for climate vulnerable countries, you know communities at the front line of the crisis, there's no answer coming out from negotiation. Naf, can I probe you a bit on that? Because, I mean, we hear about this equity and about rich countries, um, you know, not stepping up, not not playing their part. And then at the same time, Oxfam has just put out this report, right, on, on the role of rich individuals, especially. Can you talk to us a little bit about what what is Oxfam saying on that? What do you want? What is a key message coming out of the work that Oxfam is doing right now when it comes to rich people, billionaires and their responsibility? So Oxfam's report actually is really, really relevant in these spaces because what's missing, you know, the discussion that's missing in the space is about who is responsible. It's not only rich countries, yeah, it's also the richest people and corporates. So our latest report shows that it's not only their lifestyle, but also their investment that's causing, you know, the climate crisis. So investment from the richest uh, is causing, you know, a million times more emission compared to uh, someone in the bottom 90% of humanity. So in these spaces, when we're talking about responsibility for the climate crisis, we should also be talking about you know, the richest people and what they can do. So, for instance, we can also link this to the issue of loss and damage. There's a lot of discussion on the need for loss and damage funding. And, you know, rich countries, for instance, are resisting that uh, the finance needed for, for loss and damage is a lot. But one way we can address this issue, not, Oxfam is pushing on this. A lot of civil society are also backing us, um, developing Countries, uh, uh, negotiators are also catching on this. They're asking for, you know, uh, for the riches to be taxed or their their wealth to be taxed, and that can finance uh, loss and damage funding. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Neff. Are we are we going to hear in the rest of the program um, from um, uh, an activist in the Netherlands who was kind of chaining himself to private planes uh, at the airport in Amsterdam just recently, and. And from Harjeet Singh as well, who's from the uh, Climate Action Network, is going to talk a bit more about you know the, the, the greenwashing, the influence of business. Um, but for now, Naf, that was great. Thank you for the summary. And um, thank you for taking the time out of your, your busy lobbying agenda. Um, and, uh, you know, we wish you the best of luck in these last few crucial days. Keep fighting for, for equity and justice at the COP in Egypt. Thanks so much. Gosh, well, it was um, it was great hearing from Neff. Uh, that what shocked me was the the facts that were coming out of it are actually really shocking. Not just the amount um, of emissions by these billionaires, but also the amount of tax dollars that we could be generating if we were to tax this billionaire wealth. 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was quite an interesting uh, bit of research, you know, because there's been a if you think about it, two streams, there's been a lot of stuff in the press uh, about the kind of lifestyle emissions of the super rich, you know, their yachts, their private jets, and rightly so because their their lifestyle emissions are enormous. And then there's a lot of kind of parallel work, if you like, climate activists looking at the big investors, you know, pension funds, universities, trying to get them to divest from fossil fuels. And that's been going on for some years now with some successes. But what we tried to do with this research was look at billionaires, not just as consumers of carbon, but as investors. You know, we looked at the companies where they have massive investments and and the emissions of those companies. And we found that billionaires are twice as likely to be invested in polluting industries than average and that uh, on average the average billionaire in our sample emits a million times more carbon than someone in the bottom 90 percent so it really is off the charts these guys are immensely and they are mostly guys mostly white guys have immense power over our global economy and are at the moment putting their money into fossil fuels and and burning the planet so yeah it's good it's good good thing to be a part of you know, and I was just also thinking, you know, in, in the space that I'm operating in here in D.C., there's all this conversation about, you know, how do you get from the from the billions to the trillions? And I'm like, the answer is right here. We have over one trillion dollars um, available if you tax this billionaire wealth. How much? It's one point four, isn't it? One point four trillion. Plenty of money. And that that's from a, a reasonably moderate wealth tax on people with wealth of 5 million, 50 million or over a billion. And that would give you, uh, a, you know, a, a conservative estimate, $1.4 trillion in additional tax revenue uh, each year. And that, that would make a huge difference. Imagine what that could do in terms of helping poor countries cope with the impacts of climate change, you know, paying the reparations that we owe them for the damage we've done to the world, you know. Well, well, let's move on to to hear another perspective from also from from Sharma Sheikh in Egypt. There's um, Harjit Singh from from Climate Action Network is is here ready to speak with us as well. Yeah, that's great. Let's hear from him too. Harjit, do you want to just uh, introduce yourself? I'm Harjit Singh. Uh... Head of Global Political Strategy at Climate Action Network and Global Engagement Director at the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative. I'm based in New Delhi, India. And you're speaking to us from, from the COP? I am. I am in Shamul Sheikh right now. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for, for spending the time and, and getting on. So so um, I wanted to ask you, I get your perspective. You've been active on these issues um, for, for, for many years, doing amazing work. How you see this kind of uh, intersection, if you like, between economic inequality and the fight for climate justice. What does it what does it mean to you? Well, since I started working on the climate change, we always looked at this issue from the perspective of um, you know development deficit, inequality, and the connections between economic inequality and climate injustice. In fact, it's the global inequality um, between countries and also between elites and average persons that has caused the climate crisis in the first place. And now when you look at health crisis intensifying and even the global energy crisis, the link between economic inequality and all these crises is absolutely crystal clear. 
Yeah, and when you see the 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 emissions of the richest, the power of the richest, can you tell me a bit about? I mean, there's there's been quite a lot of work looking at the the role of rich people and corporates at the COP itself. I mean, do you feel they're kind of? I mean, you've been going to the COP for many years. Do you think it's got worse? Do you see the kind of influence of industry more, and and or is that just being called out more? Honestly, it is getting worse, and especially when we saw at Glasgow. Uh, the fossil fuel um, industry had the biggest delegation. And here there are already stories out that there are more than 600 fossil fuel lobbies floating around and using uh, this COP as a space to sell fossil fuels and turning this very important climate conference into an expo so that they can uh, get more contracts for fossil fuel investments. And we have also seen how elites uh, influence these negotiations to their own benefit so that they can continue with the same economic model that has caused all these crises in the first place. And, and give, me, give me an example. Of, like, I mean, when you've seen the kind of influence of billionaires, what's the kind of things they're pushing for and what should we worry about? We should be worried about because some of these uh, funds are created by these billionaires. I would not call them um, more than greenwashing. Uh, this is just to uh, clean their image because the main problem remains their business model. And the way they have uh, constructed their businesses, which are high emitting and causing more inequality, they're not respecting workers' rights, they're not respecting environmental standards, but they would like to create these funds that can help them do more greenwashing and improve their image, their business's image. And that is, an, is extremely harmful. Just look at this. One of the main sponsors of this COP27 is Coca-Cola. When we know that it is the biggest uh, consumer of plastics, uh, another product of fossil fuels. But a lot of people out there probably don't realize how something as perverse as a, a global uh, conference to tackle climate change has more people from the fossil fuel industry than anyone else and is sponsored by Coca-Cola. I mean, it feels like something out of a novel. Um, but give us some hope as well, Harjeet, because at the same time this is happening, we've seen this massive groundswell of anger worldwide on, on the issue of reparations, of loss and damage. That feels to be coming through a lot this time uh, in Egypt. Can you say a bit more about that and, and how you're feeling about it? Sure, Max, and you are absolutely right. There is some hope, but the hope is not coming from so-called world leaders. Uh, hope is coming from people who have been raising their voice on how this global inequality has actually affected people. When we talk about climate change and impacts, it's increasing inequality because people who have done least to cause the problem are facing these impacts. So they have been calling for a loss and damage finance facility or a fund that helps them recover from these climate impacts. And it's a matter of justice. It's about reparations, compensation, obligations. Of course, we know this language may not land in these climate negotiations when the final outcome is there. But what we essentially need is a, uh, is a fund that helps them uh, rebuild their lives and recover from these impacts. And we saw traction on the day one of COP27 conference where this agenda on what we call loss and damage finance is firmly there under finance. And this has been a major demand for the last several years. And it's the first time we got it. And there's huge pressure that we have put on rich countries to respond to the demands. And another good thing is 
we have seen unprecedented unity uh, within the group of developing countries, uh, what we call as G77, and they're all together demanding. And that's how we got some traction at COP26. And here also they seem to be united so far. Which is which is amazing. And we've certainly seen that work in other negotiations like trade and things in the past, haven't we? What, um, what would you say is the difference to your mind between climate finance and loss and damage? Could you just give a sense for, for, for what the kind of loss and damage frame brings to the whole debate? Sure. Um, so far, the climate finance has been limited to mitigation and adaptation. So mitigation, as we all know, it's about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, protecting forests, and adaptation is uh, helping people uh, prepare well before disasters. So retrofitting their homes or building dikes um, or adapting their agriculture to be more resilient. Whereas loss and damage finance is about helping people when they are already affected, when they lose their homes, their crops, their income, uh, infrastructure loss. That's when the whole issue of loss and damage finance uh, you know, becomes applicable. However, when we demand loss and damage finance, it has to be new and additional to climate finance for mitigation and adaptation. And, and I must tell you, Max, the amount is going to run into hundreds of billions of dollars, which makes rich countries nervous. But the reality is that we are facing losses and damages, these climate impacts, because of 30 years of inaction. No, exactly. And then one of the things we've been calling for this week is or at least drawing attention to the scale of revenue that could be raised from taxing rich people and taxing billionaires. We need to get that money and, and, and liberate it, I think. Exactly. And I would like to particularly mention fossil fuel industry and the windfall profits that they have made and how those profits must be taxed. And even UN Secretary General did talk about taxing uh, these, these companies so that people who are suffering from the climate crisis, so on uh, loss and damage finance as we are demanding, but also people who are facing the food and energy crisis, including in the global north, they need to be helped. You know, a carbon brief um, did an analysis that 10% of tax on oil and gas profits could have raised $49 billion for loss and damage in 2022 alone. So imagine the amount of money they have been making. So money is there and we also know where it needs to go. What is missing is the political will and how those vested interests between governments and corporations uh, that that needs to be exposed so that we can start seeing redistribution of, of, of these, um, you know, this money uh, that needs to go to uh, vulnerable people who have not caused the problem. Thank you, Harjit. That was amazing. And, and, and good luck for the rest of the week at the COP. We've got to keep fighting. Thank you so much, Max. Uh, it was great to join you in this interesting conversation. Oh, that was that was a, a good interview you did with uh, with Harjit there, Max. And I mean, you know, one of the things that struck me is just the the silver lining of this all. You know, there's a lot of disappointment we're hearing coming out of COP27, but the the silver lining and the positive thing that keeps happening is this movement building against climate change and really, especially the young activists that we've heard about from these interviews, but also that we've been reading about in the news. Um, and, and I'm excited that we get a chance to hear from one of them, this um, Toon Ott, a young activist from the Extinction Rebellion in Netherlands, and, and, and hear about the kind of thing that, that he was doing uh, in the Netherlands and where he actually got arrested. This young guy, he's amazing. 
and what they did occupying the airport in the Netherlands. Well, you're going to hear about it in the interview. It's really exciting. So let's let's listen to that. Tun, uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, of course. Uh, I'm I'm very thrilled to be here. I'm Tun. I'm a, um, a climate activist and I'm a history teacher in training in Amsterdam. Uh, today I'm 19 years old, but tomorrow I'll turn 20, which is also very exciting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, I'm nearly 50, <laughs> so I'm very jealous as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so are you involved in the, the amazing protest that we all saw in the newspapers at Schiphol Airport um, just the other day? Could you tell us a bit about them? You know, what was the idea behind that? What were you trying to trying to show the world? Well, first of all, what I think we want to show the world is that um, the that especially by blocking private jets is that the the aviation industry, especially the part that focuses on the, the, the super rich, the, the millionaires, the billionaires, that it's totally unsustainable, it's totally unfair, and it basically cannot continue like this. So tell us about the process itself. I think there's about 200 people. and I mean, have you done things like this before? Is it quite scary? You know, is you not worried that you're going to get arrested or shot or something? Well, shot was a bit, it, it did cross my mind, but it wasn't uh, a big concern. Um, but I, I have done stuff like this before, especially with the Extinction Rebellion. Uh, I think the first time when I got arrested, I was just 18. Uh, after a while, you get kind of used to it. But I'm so impressed. I'm nearly 50 and I've never been arrested. And I, I just, I'm really impressed. So, <laughs> so, so talk me about it. So you, you, did you get there really early? So you kind of, you had it all planned before? You knew where the private jets were? Or was it kind of a bit spontaneous? How, did, how does it work? Well, the, the planning had been going on for quite a while. Uh, I do know a couple of the organizers and it was like a lot of work and a lot of effort into organizing this action. But um, the night before uh, we had a briefing, they tried to give us like the basic information that we needed to participate. They gave us amazing legal training um, and then they just told us, okay, you have to be on this place um, at this time. So around 11 a.m. we uh, we assembled at this small parking lot near Schiphol uh, and then around 12, I think we just kind of went there and uh we were all wearing these white jumpsuits that you've probably seen and how did you get in yeah there were already people from greenpeace inside of the like on the other side of the fence we went to the eastern part of schiphol and that's where all the private jets are stationed i had to run inside it as fast as possible towards the private jets and then there were already people already sitting there in the the lock-on tubes and the metal tubes around your arms so you can like lock onto other people Oh, I see. So went, you're all kind of locked together. Uh, not everyone, just a handful of people. The rest of us, we just kind of sat behind them or in front. Okay, of them. and so a handful of people kind of and also locked themselves to the planes or something. I had to had to, what What are they doing there then? Well, they weren't locked to the planes because okay. if we damaged them, we would be uh, we would be in a lot of legal trouble. Yeah, that's true. They locked themselves just to each other, basically just like around the uh, the the plane. So. The plane still couldn't take off, but the plane wouldn't be damaged in any way. Well, I thought it was an amazing stunt. What interests us, you know, obviously we're looking at the, the relationship between inequality and climate. And, and yeah, this, this, this connection, if you like, between the super rich and 
and their lifestyles and, and planetary break, breakdowns. Do you, th- do you think that's something for that's more and more an issue for young people? Do you see the connection between those two things uh, more, or do you think it's always been a bit like that? Well, I think especially with young people right now, it's very easy to see uh, the links between the climate crisis and inequality because, um, I mean, we're bombarded with, with, the, with the climate crisis every day on the news. But also the Netherlands is facing a huge housing uh, crisis for students. Um, a lot of people going into serious debt to, to finance their life and their studies. Um, while we do know that there are a lot of rich people in this country. Um, so a lot of people are not only fed up with the climate crisis, they're also fed up with the inequality. And uh, if you lay links to that, which for some people is very easy, then it's very uh, very good to come into action. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. It's true, very true here in the UK as well. I think people are really making that connection between the billionaire class and Mm-hmm. people's hardships every day and the climate crisis i think it's 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 great to see that all coming together thank you for doing what you're doing and thank you to all your comrades and and friends and, and campaigners um yeah brilliant work yeah thanks so much oh i love that interview i mean what a nail biter what an exciting <laughs> uh, risk-taking uh, you know, and quite brave as well, you know. Um, I'm just not sure I'd ever be that brave. Well, you know, maybe you've lost that opportunity now that you're no longer young, Max, you know, because it's like just like that energy um, and excitement and but also, you know, urgency, I think, for young people today. It was a great story. And, and there's just so much mobilization happening around the world. And in Sharm el-Sheikh, I mean, just beautiful images coming out from youth activists, especially from Africa, just you see the the women wearing blue with the flood, the COP27 um, mobilization. It's just been beautiful to watch. So, I mean, definitely feeling uh, depressed by, by the outcomes, but also a lot of hope in, in the youth, especially around, uh, the, you know, really just pushing for action on climate. Yeah, action and also the kind of the uncompromising nature and the, the the radicalism. It's not just mm. the fact that young people are mobilised. It's the fact that they're, you know, absolutely fearlessly telling it how it is. And and you know the thing about climate is there's no half measures unless we do the right thing. You know the planet is screwed. You you see the thing in the Guardian where the the head of the Jeff Bezos fund said it it's not the responsibility of billionaires to fund climate finance. It's the responsibility <laughs> of government. And I just wanted to be in the audience saying, well, maybe it's the responsibility of Jeff Bezos to pay his taxes in the first place, and then the government would have more money. But yeah, I, mean, I think, I think uh, you should start a response. Yeah, I think um, uh, me v Jeff. Anyway, that was great. Great episode. Great to get that live kind of feedback from the cop. And yeah, I mean, we just keep fighting for climate justice and keep trying to make that link to inequality. That was a great episode, and I'm looking forward to sharing with our audience our upcoming episodes, which are very closely related, looking at the historical responsibility of the global north, um, the damage that they have caused, and the reparations that they owe to the global south. And so we've got a two-part special coming up on reparations, um, and we start with the Caribbean, move to Africa. It's super exciting, so do look out for that. Yeah, looking forward to that one brilliant thanks everyone do 
subscribe, tell all your friends, and uh, look forward to talking to you again on Equals. Bye. Thank you.